I know that the general thought is that the world is getting worse. This new generation, these young people, wasn't like that when I was a kid. It's nice to almost be old enough to pull that off. But I saw a sign Thursday night that convinced me maybe the world's getting better as we launched the Trammell flotilla of humans to go and threaten our neighbors into giving them candy. I saw that many of the neighbors in the neighborhood were putting out their blue and green trash cans. When I was a child, nobody on the night of Halloween would have put those cans on the street. And if you don't know why, that's funny. You probably are a better person than I was. So they're putting them out, the, you know, the blue and the, the green. I, and I came from Fort, unincorporated Fort Bend County. We had like the trash can that you had yourself. I got here and they, they give you your own trash can in the city limits of, of this city. And they say, you put this trash here, you put your recycling here. I love the green one, the, the composting, food scraps, yard trimmings. Um, and you get to put those in there. And then in our neighborhood, at least Friday is the blue and green. I think it's Tuesdays, the trash can day. I don't, whatever day in the morning is, oh no, there's diapers in there, run. That's the morning of the trash can uh, day. They were going out. Uh, and it made me think about uh, how it's nice when we sort of have a way we can work together to make things we want to do that are good better. I have a blue can next to my desk and I have a, a black for the trash. And so into the blue can, it's paper and cardboard recycling. I put it in there. And next to that is a black trash can where just the trash goes. Everything that's not that thing goes in there. The problem with that is I was in a meeting nine months, a year ago, uh, in which we were discussing a challenge we were having because, uh, you may know, nonprofits, commercial properties don't have the same residential recycling processes that San Antonio provides to or waste management provides to residential homeowners. So we have to contract our own. And so our contractor uh, gave us a can we put out in the back. Remember the big can of paper recycling? Cardboard boxes? Do you know it's not there anymore? I did. I was at the meeting. The company that did that uh, went, I think, uh, out of business or out of operation and left the can. Uh, helpful community members continued to add things to the pile around the can. And so we had a meeting and said, we're going to have to get this pulled away because this is no longer operational to get it taken somewhere else. And so we did. We got it removed. It's not there anymore. Nine months ago. Next to my desk is a trash can and a blue can. And I have been dutifully and feeling pretty good about myself. Putting the paper that I produce and are no longer in need of into the recycling. Except it was literally just a few days ago when it occurred to me, where is that going? <laughs> That's right. The same place everything else was. I'm sure the landfill appreciated organizing the paper um, away from all the rest of the trash. I intended to do something good. I actually felt pretty good about what I was doing. I mean, I'm a busy person. It takes a long time to put the, to the can next to it. But it wasn't going anywhere. And this is the beginning of the foolishness that I've been a part of personally in thinking, maybe even feeling like I was doing good, and yet no actual difference was being made. 
If we want something good to happen, we might want to think about the system in which it's operating. I put something in a can and somebody else hands it. You know, they is a great solution to all the problems, isn't it? They should do something. I just assumed they were handling it. And I've worked at a church long enough to know that they is me, us. There's no they. I, I hope I'm not dissuading all of your hopes this morning. But if you're waiting for they to fix your city, they to fix your church, they to fix your country, they's us. And I bet you are like me, putting stuff in a blue can and feeling pretty good about how I'm operating the world. Man, it sure is good that I'm taking care of planet Earth. Just the beginning, really, of the story, and uh, it is absolutely in the Bible. This whole story begins this way, that God wants uh, a good and wonderful world for us to live in. Uh, Genesis witnesses to this. In the beginning, formless and void, God speaks creative energy with identity. That's what we claim God is, this creative force of that which is, both of substance and systems, calling light into being and and writing uh, the codes of our hope there in the beginning. And it says over and over again that God makes and it's good. Just you can't miss it. I'm pretty dense and I can't miss it. It's good. Next day happens, he makes something else cool. It's good. The thing that I missed for too long that in that goodness, he keeps talking about seeds. The fruit has seeds in it. The plants have seeds in them. The animals can make more animals. That The two things that we can't miss in the God's world, and it's God's, have goodness and possibility, creativity. This is the hope of God for the world, that it would be abundant, that it would be good. And God takes his kind of pinnacle of that creation, uh, human beings, puts them in the garden and says, steward this, take care of it. Take care of each other. Take care of the dirt. Take care of the fruit. Be abundant in this place. Steward this for me and hang out with me. Hang out with each other. And it will be good. You and I didn't wake up this morning in that world. The weather's nice today. There may be blessings in it, but there are burdens and brokenness. And it comes because Genesis tells the truth that Adam and Eve, and so do we, when given the opportunity between stewarding the abundance and goodness and possibility of God, choose to own something less abundant, less good that we can control. That's the trade. That's the fall. That's the world we live in. We trade the abundance and possibility of God for our own control, our own ownership. Stewards become owners. God shows up and says, hey, where are you? We're supposed to hang out. That's one of the jobs. You take care of each other, you take care of the garden, and you come hang out with me. That's what it means to be human. And Adam and Eve are hiding. Why are they hiding? They're hiding because they had eaten of the one thing God said not to do. It's not about a pomegranate or an apple, whatever image you have of the garden. It's about God being able to determine the boundaries of what is good and saying, let me be Lord and owner, you be steward. And Adam and Eve say, eh, I don't know about that. So do we. And so they eat the fruit and their eyes are open, their minds are open, the text said, and they realize they were naked. Now they were naked before. Now they're naked. If you're not from East Texas, maybe that doesn't make sense, but I know exactly the difference. They felt bad about it. They had shame about their very bodies. You ever notice how weird that is? That every human being has this sort of weirdness that we don't fit. We even talk about like not fitting in our own bodies. That's true. I've never seen uh, uh, one of our dogs or a cat run up to the window and go, you know, my ears just aren't right. And I have spent years of my life looking in the mirror and going, oh, those ears. 
I literally used to tell folks I'm not photogenic until I realized what I was saying. You know what it means to say you're not photogenic? It means that I look at a picture and I go, nah, I'm better looking than that. There's no way. <laughs> That's what that means. That's all I'm saying. I can't be me because in my head I have an image looking better. Isn't that strange that we don't feel like we fit in our body? Genesis says in the very beginning, that's the first thing that goes wrong. That we look at our bodies and go, eh. Why should we feel that way about the flesh in which we inhabit? We do. We feel alienated from the very being of who we are. And so they hide from God. So the first alienation is from ourselves. Then it's from God. God feels far away, and so we hide. We heard you in the garden, they say, but we were naked and ashamed, and so we hid. That alienation is a feedback loop that becomes other distance. I don't feel right in my skin. If I don't want to hang out with God. He reminds me of the fact that I have skin, and it's not covered. And God says, what have you done? And then we get the real story, right? Eve. hanging out, there's fruit everywhere, everything's 24 hours and open, they all take cards, you can eat anywhere. And she hears the whisper of the voice that says, that looks pretty good, did God really say? And it looks pleasing to the eye and maybe she's interested, so she eats, it takes and eats and gives it to her husband, Adam, who's there. And when God shows up and asks about this whole story, it's even in the sort of joking tone in which I always tell this because for too long we've blamed Eve for the story. Eve says, the serpent lied to me and, and so I ate it. And then Adam says, and this is my favorite part, he doubles down, he doesn't just blame the serpent, doesn't just blame Eve, he says, that woman, it's in there, look it up. That woman that you put in here with me, that's what he says gave me the fruit and I ate it. How awesome is that? Look, the world's broken, Lord, but look, here's the thing. You put her in here. It's really, it's, it's on you. Blame is at the heart of our brokenness. Just the, the shifting of blame. And you see how quickly he just, he just turns on Eve? Here's a really inconvenient point. Guys, if you like this story, you're like, ah, that's what women do. I've heard that. I've heard that story at men's retreat. And I'm like, I think you need to read all of it again. <laughs> Eve's not there when the instruction not to eat from that tree is given. Adam is. Hold on to that for a moment and let it sit. <laughs> She's heard about the rule, but she might have got it secondhand from him. Which makes me think, you know, they got to that point and she goes, we've talked about that, right? And that happens in my marriage too. It falls. They blame each other. They're alienated from the very uh, connection that they've had. They're alienated from their own bodies. They're alienated from God. And then they're driven from the garden. The abundance that they were to steward is now no longer a place where they fit. And so they're outside of that. And then all those blessings get tainted by that alienation. Alienation is the root of our brokenness. We are no longer fitting in bodies. We're no longer connected to God. And we are no longer connected to each other. Then, we're told, when you leave this place, Adam, there's a Hebrew play on earth and a human that's going on all through that we miss in the English. When you leave this dirt and go to the other dirt, it will not obey you as the other dirt did. When you plant wheat, weeds will grow. 
and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat. That's your daily bread. And we hear that as labor, but it's actually most likely an idiom that like knock on woods, an idiom that means good luck. It means anxiety and worry. Who doesn't know about that daily bread? How do you eat? How do you eat? You eat daily bread that is manna from heaven, or do you eat the daily bread from the sweat of your brow outside the garden where abundance isn't guaranteed and maybe there won't be enough? Maybe that retirement won't hold up. Maybe uh, I'm wasting my time in this place. Maybe that anxiety that eats away at our wholeness, our labor, that alienation from the very ground and from the production of that ground, both in the fact that it's sometimes futile and that we plant, or in vain, we plant weeds and wheat and get weeds. We sometimes plant weeds too. We plant wheat and get weeds, but also in our uh, processing of that production so we get alienated from that and so that the root cause of brokenness in the world is seen within the first three chapters of Genesis from our bodies our very selves from God from each other and from our labor from the world from creation itself and one of the things that we want to hold in this month going forward is one of the ways to understand the nature and nature of poverty that reframes it in a constructive engagement for all of us is to think of poverty in forms of alienation. And that means all of us are the poor. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have issues to deal with around material poverty. We're going to talk about that. But I think we sometimes isolate people whose particular alienation shows up most acutely in their work, maybe not in themselves or in their relationship with God, and we have thoughts about that. And so we think of the poor and those for whom the mission of God exists to be for those whose labor isn't as productive as we might desire or they might desire. Our challenge is to look biblically at these things and see the mission of God's response to the holistic alienation of the world, the poverty of hearts, the poverty of our relationships, the poverty of our spiritual uh, lives and connection to God, and yes, our poverty in our relationship to the production of our labors. And you can be poor and have a lot. The story goes forward and we find out that things get worse. Cain and Abel are born to them and they fight over how to worship uh, and who gives the best offerings and there's violence. Lamech comes along and kills a bunch more people. But we get to the time we get to Noah in chapter five, five. Every inclination of every human heart was only evil all the time. It goes bad, but God won't totally give up, washes it clean, calls Noah forward. And then we get to Genesis 11 in a plain out east and this tower and the people remember, they feel alienated from themselves, from each other, from God, from labor. And so they're like, hey, look, if we all get together and work on this one project, we'll be okay. Let's build this tower, we'll get into heaven, we'll get back there, we'll no longer feel like, I don't know, our ears look funny, our bodies aren't right, we don't like the way the mirror looks. We won't ever have brokenness in relationships. We, we'll feel connected to God, and then we'll have all the abundance that our hearts are set upon. And God says, you can't fix it. The Tower of Babel is confused and knocked down. And then Genesis 12, the real rescue mission is underway. God calls Abram and says, come the other way. You and your family will join me. You will join me in the work I will do to set right to heal and to reconcile this alienation. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Do y'all have a lot in your family? If you're not laughing, um, either you haven't read it or it could be you. And you're all welcome here. 
But Thanksgiving's coming and lots can be sitting around the table, I'm sure, at some of our feasts. Lots that family member that Abraham's trying so hard to help the boy. Help him, Lord. That, you know, you hear that in some churches, help him, Lord. Um, that's what Abraham's trying to do. He's trying to help Lot. Abraham's the head of this large family. Families aren't nuclear in the ancient world. They're large, almost tribes, we would call them. Abraham's the head of that. So Lot's in that uh, large family. He's a, a pretty close relative and Lot just keeps struggling. Abraham's trying to help, but then Lot gets himself captured and taken uh, to uh, a foreign uh, tribal chief. And Abraham was like, man, I told him not to do that. I told him not to be there. I, I'm sure he said, don't, don't do that. He, he wanted to tell him, I told you not to. Like I want to tell my kids. By the way, that whole blaming Eve, if you want a performance art reenactment of that, come to my house. Because a chocolate-smeared child will tell you, I didn't eat any of the chocolate. But if I did, she gave it to me. <laughs> That's Lot. Lot's in that same brokenness. And Abraham's trying to figure it out. He gets captured. And it, you know, Abraham might, not be, might be forgiven as saying, well, that was the end of Lot. And he's just no good. And he's always up to no good. But Abraham gets all the fighting men of his village and he, uh, of his tribe, and he takes them, hundreds of them, and goes and fights against the one who holds Lot, frees him at great risk to himself. The word, by the way, is redeems Lot there and brings him back and restores him in the land of the tribe. It's not Abraham's fault that Lot is Lot. But Abraham seems to have a connection to him that won't let go even when Lot makes alienating choices. God renews this covenant uh, with Abraham through Moses. I'm going to do a thing. Moses, go tell him about it. David, I'm going to build a capital and you can join me in that place with Solomon in the temple, with the prophets after, and fully and finally in Jesus Christ shows up and says, I'm in this with all of you alienated folks. If human flesh was the first spot of alienation, how powerful is the message of Christmas? That the incarnation is God pouring himself into human flesh that it wouldn't be alienated and look wrong, feel wrong. And relationships might be restored and the connection to God might be restored and the connection to our attitudes and our actions and our labors might be healed. Jesus not only fills with the Holy Spirit his flesh, but then gives that flesh on the cross for you and for me. His resurrected three days later to prove that death and those that wield it aren't more powerful than God's love. And the scripture from 1 Peter 2 for today says this, for to you, for to this you have been called. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. So if you're ever wondering if that whole follow me disciple thing was just for like the original 12, like that was like a, a 1.0 version, and for now our job is just to say yes to not, just say yes to Jesus and not follow. Peter's pretty clear. This is well after uh, the resurrection when he writes this. This is uh, for you too. Christ's given us an example and we should follow. 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So Jesus goes to the cross and pays a penalty for sin that he was not guilty of. That woman that you put in here with me. 
we think like Adam, if we can figure out who to blame, we'll be free. There are whole systems set up to help us find people to blame, to be mad at and be afraid of. And so that helps us, we think, to be free, to be liberated. But the biblical inversion of this is pretty potent. And that is to say, Jesus isn't to blame. God's not to blame for the broken alienation in which we find ourselves. God's not to blame for the fallen state of the world. And yet it seems in the midst of that, God shows up and restores, reconciles and renews and takes responsibility. It's not God's fault. It's not Abraham's fault that Lot is Lot. But Lot belongs to Abraham. He's his. You have people that belong to you? Do you think, man, if you were not my brother's kid, I would not be watching you chew right now. They belong to us. The declaration of God for creation and for us, Peter says, is that we belong to God. So God does what Abraham does, only more so and for all, does for Lot, does for you and me, and says you have been captured by that which doesn't deserve your loyalty and frees us, sets us free, heals us, restores us. He goes on. When he was abused, this is Jesus, he did not return abuse. That is, retribution won't save us either. Forgiveness will. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is, this temporary action of these folks will not be as eternal as the judgment of a good God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin, we might live. Don't miss this, because I did for a long time. It is true, Jesus goes to the cross, and we said it earlier, we are sinners. Jesus empowers us to say back to them, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. That's amazing. Everything you brought with you, everything you've done is no longer a binding wound, a moral injury on your heart in this moment because of what Jesus did on the cross. But there's a so that, so that. There's a launching towards so that free from that sin, no longer alienated from our very identity and hearts, restored because of what he's done, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you, I, have been healed. Whew. I've been healed. And so now that I'm well, I can stop saying that woman that you, Lord, put in here with me, or those church people, not y'all, you're great, these church people, right, blame, we think, gets us off the hook. The truth is we're on the hook, but Jesus got on the cross, so the hook doesn't matter. So that we might join and follow, don't lose verse 21, follow after Jesus in this, which means when we talk about mission, to the poor in all ways, including us. It is a mission not born by our capacity to fix it. That's a Babel story, that somehow we're gonna build a tower or a system or a government or a culture that will no longer be touched and flawed by the alienation of people. It goes too deep, too broad, and too big, but we can join. And
And we can step back from the cultural practice that's only getting more intense with social media, that if we could find the right people to blame and shame, then we'd all be free and virtuous. And we'd feel better. But you know what that is? Well, that's like having a blue can next to your desk and throwing paper in there that just winds up in the trash. We feel pretty good. We feel pretty good that we had somebody else that's maybe morally worse off or further behind than us. We can shame or blame. We, we feel better, but the truth is it all winds up in the trash. It all winds up not made new, not recycled, not re-aimed, not stewarded, but instead owned by us in the broken and hurting places of our heart. We think blame and shame will set us free. We've been trying it since Scarlet Letters. We've been doing it since Jesus said, throw the first stone. We've been doing it all the way back to when Judas sees Tamar and says, go ahead and stone her. And she says, yeah, but it's you. The story is old and ancient, and we've yet to learn it. The mission of the church is to join God in the invasion of heaven, not because they're the people we got to find to blame, but we got so much blessing to share. And the alienation that God has healed within us is contagious if we walk and follow after Jesus. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Here is the reading of the word of God for the people of God. I love that notion. We've heard shepherd talk about Jesus a lot, but the guardian of your souls, ooh, that's good. So church folks, I don't think that we do mission and ministry in the city of San Antonio, in the schools, in the work that we have, on the uh, places that we live in our neighborhoods, because we're called to be really nice. That's not really why. We're not called to do it because we can fix it. I, I have confessed to you that there have been moments in my journey where I got caught up in what God was doing and I, I wanna unzip the robe and I run a run because it becomes a cape. The superheroes are here. Where are the poor people? We're here to solve it. Let me just, just for a moment, I want you to think about somebody knocking on your door and saying, hey, you don't know me. I'm here to solve all of your problems. If that door stays open at your house, you're a nicer person than I am. I'm like, come, thanks, we're good. And that's sort of, unfortunately, how so often the church goes about its blessing and compassion ministry. You have problems. We don't. But y'all don't. I love the people that don't know if they're allowed to laugh or not. But I have problems. <laughs> we, we literally think that. But let's just for a moment, let's think if the alleviation of the alienation looked like this. What if, what if we got so good at alleviating material poverty that everybody lived on the same streets, behind the same gates, in the same neighborhoods as many of us do, then those people wouldn't have any problems or concerns. They wouldn't be alienated from anything. Well, maybe it's better on your streets or in your homes or in your mirrors than mine. The depth of brokenness is not merely a math problem, though we have one. You know, San Antonio is number one. We're not going to make a banner, but we're number one for inequality in major cities in America. That's not a list we were looking to top. You're not to blame for that. You have to blame for the fact that some schools perform really well and some schools don't, and there's patterns to why. You're not to blame for the heritage of brokenness between different racial groups in this country. You're not to blame for the fact that women live in fear to walk on streets because one in four of them are insulted in ways that we can't conceive of and yet happen so often. It's not your fault 
that elderly folks are unloved and unhonored in our culture. It's not to blame that children are unloved and don't have homes. It's not your thought to blame. I, I told you last week that I came out of my experience uh, in the prison ministry trip that I took, struggling with what to do with the fact that those, so many of them, all of them that I talked to had no male figure in their life that was a constructive presence. It's not your fault. I'm not to blame for that. But we might be responsible. We might be able to respond. We might be able to think about, not just feel about, we might be able to think about and act about things that bring reconciliation and the end alienation in those places where people are alienated from each other, from God, from their labor, and from themselves. That is the root of fallenness and sin. And so mission, when we engage in it culturally or communally and with compassion, isn't like an add-on. It's the point. It's a part of the whole. Because heaven's invading earth through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're following Jesus, who wasn't to blame, but said, I'll take it, I'll pay the bill, so that we might live and righteousness might be known. So that we might join in where God is. We don't fix it. We're not the savior Jesus is, but we can join him in those places and we can tell the stories of how his wounds have made us healed. And we can share the abundant blessing of this place and restore folks to uh, opportunity and agency, not limiting them in who they are, but calling them to the greatness and glory of God's presence in their lives. It can happen for them because it's happened for us. And it can happen in all those places because God isn't just concerned about bad thoughts or bad days, but a broken world. God says, creation's mine and so are those people. And so he fights and invites us to join him in those places. It's All Saints Sunday, we're gonna take communion. We got work to do so you might be hungry. We got food and fuel for that journey. We're gonna read the names of those who have come before us and have been a part of this community this past year that have gone on to glory and cheer us on in this race, that we might bring good news to schools, to a city, that it might be different. Not just that we might feel good about what we've done, but the neighborhood and dirt we've been sent to might be different because God has reconciled it, redeemed it and made us whole. We're different. When you read those names, you won't know all of them, but a few of them you will depending on how your lives interacted, we're different because of them. We don't just feel things about them, we are things because of them. This is the gospel story. One of the names on that list was a funeral from last Friday, the last one, before we start a new list for this next year. And the family shared such amazing witness of the life of this woman that I eventually asked, how do we make more people like this? <laughs> how do we do this? Do you hear a little bit of the cape coming out when I ask that question? It's true. You can. Hold me accountable. How do we do this as a people? How do we have this happen in our midst? And they said, well, she read her Bible a lot. She hung out with Jesus and she was always looking to bless other people. That's pretty good. That's how even things that we think are trash get recycled and re-aimed for purpose to be renewed. Hanging out in Bible, spending time with Jesus, and looking for a way to bless other people, to find ourselves connected with God's heart for this world, for us, and for all. Let's pray. Lord, 
You have paid a price to set us free and shown us that blame and finger pointing will not free us, but you will, so that we may no longer be defined by what's wrong, but by where you are at work. May we join you in that place, not building our own kingdoms, but finding the mission that came before there were churches. The healing and brokenness of all that is alienated in the fall, Lord, teach us again to let go of the squeezing ownership of our hands on the small things that the abundance of which you call us to be stewards of might be ours. We might be each other's and we might be yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.